What if someone uh, was to ask you, what is the big deal with Christmas? What's the, what's the big deal uh, about Christmas? What is so great about Christmas? And I'm talking someone talking to you as a believer, asking you that question. What would you say in return? How would you respond to that? What's the big deal about Christmas, you Christians? What's, what's the big deal with Christmas for you guys? Would you respond with, well, uh, it's, it's time I get to spend with my family. I get to spend some time with my family. So maybe some family comes from out of town and we gather and we have this big family time and we just get to spend time with family. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. Maybe you get a few days off from work. That's a very good thing, right? A few days off from work. Um, maybe you respond, uh, for one time during the year, it appears that everyone seems to be somewhat kind. You ever notice that about Christmas? Yeah, even those people who are have this, um, you know, cloudy disposition with thunderstorms on the horizon, you know, they're just walking around just kind of like they're mad at the world and just bitter and somebody just shot their dog and they're, you know, they're just, they're not happy about anything. But some reason at Christmas they just seem to be, you ever notice people like that? You're like, man, what's going on? That's a good thing though. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. All those things that I've talked about are, are well and good, but are they really what makes Christmas so great? Those things are good, but are they what make Christmas so great? John begins his gospel he doesn't really have an introduction. He doesn't bother to tell you who's writing. There are no greetings. John begins with the most profound truth that has ever been declared. A truth that is beyond the ability of the greatest minds in human history to comprehend. He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us, here's what's so great about Christmas. God the Creator became a man and dwelt among us. John doesn't say anything about a stable, a manger, there's no Joseph, there's no Mary, there's no Bethlehem, no shepherds, no angel, no star, no wise men, no baby. Verses 1 and 14 are John's account of the Christmas story. This is how John sees Christmas. What is the big deal with Christmas? What happened 2,000 plus years ago in a little town south of Jerusalem in a manger? It's what makes Christmas so great. It's what the big deal is about Christmas. And if you're looking at your handout there, the main idea, the eternal, infinite God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God came to us. And you see, I give you an application point up front there based on that main idea. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal God in human flesh, we must trust Him as Savior and follow Him as Lord. Look at your handout there. Verse 1, Jesus is revealed in eternity as God. That's what John does for us there. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He tells us three significant things there. First of all, He tells us Jesus is eternal. There's some, there's some weighty, heavy theology here. Some things that are hard for us to get our minds wrapped around. John tells us that Jesus is eternal. Notice what it says there. In the beginning was 
the Word. Now that word beginning there, those first three words ought to catch our minds, if we've read our Bibles very much at all, ought to capture our thoughts. John is pointing us back to the beginning of the universe as described in Genesis 1.1. What's the first three words we see in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's words have a purpose. They are there for a reason. The Holy Spirit inspired John. He wrote these words. They have a purpose. John says Jesus was there in the beginning. John wants us to see that Jesus is the creator of all things because he tells us that in verse 3. Notice the word was. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. He was there. Uh, English lesson. The tense of that verb is what is called the imperfect tense. Imperfect means a continuing action... In the past. This means that Jesus was continuously in existence before the world began. He's always been there. There's never been a time when Jesus didn't exist. And this is extremely important because it tells us that Jesus was not created. Jesus was not created, but He existed from all eternity. Jesus is before time. He is eternal. And notice the difference with verse 14. It says there that Jesus, what? He became. He came into existence as a man. The word was, in verse 1, stresses that the word always existed. There was never a time when Jesus came into existence. In verse 14, He became something that He was not. In verse 1, He was always there. He continuously existed in eternity. Now, you think about that. That can be hard to get your mind around, right? How can you comprehend eternity without time? You and I are like, well, it had to start somewhere, didn't it? According to the Holy Spirit through John here, Jesus has always been there. He's always been there. Everything that we recognize, including the earth, the sun, and the universe, had a beginning. Jesus, the Word, has no beginning. He's always been there. He's always been there. Jesus is eternal. That's the first thing that John shows us. But also he shows us that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And the Word was where? With God. The Word was with God. Although our limited minds can't comprehend the Trinity, Scripture is clear that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Each person is fully God, and yet He is not three gods, but He is one God. The Trinity is hard for us, again, to get our minds wrapped around. It says here in His eternal pre-existence, the word Jesus was... Notice this. This is very important. You know how I am with words. These words are extremely important. Jesus was with God. Where was Jesus? With God. How long have you been there? Forever. He's always been there. I remember uh, when I did my undergraduate in Bible college, I had a professor, Dr. Harris. And man, he drove this point home to me continuously so that I would not forget it. In the Greek, was with God is proston theon. I'll never forget that phrase. 
He always brought that up. The phrase means far more than Jesus existing with God. That word with there has the idea, listen to this, of two people facing one another and engaging in a conversation face to face. You never thought with meant so much, right? From all eternity, Jesus, as a second person of the Trinity, was in deep, intimate fellowship with God the Father. For how long? Forever. Listen, God didn't create me and you because He was lonely. You ever had somebody say that? Oh, God was lonely and He needed us. He had the Holy Spirit in Jesus. He sure didn't need us. He was never lonely. And yet, Jesus left heaven. He left being face to face in communion with God to come live among us. Jesus is eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity. But notice thirdly that Jesus is God. And the Word was God. John's description of Jesus here reaches the highest point. What we have here is the clearest and most direct statement concerning the deity of Jesus. This is very clear, right? And the Word, what? Was God. John's not merely saying that there's something divine about Jesus. He's affirming that Jesus is what? God. He's not partly divine. There's not some aspect of Him that's divine. John says Jesus was what? God. Now this is extremely important. Uh, The Word wasn't just any pre-existent being that hung out with God the Father. He wasn't just some what divine person who was around when creation happened. The Word was God Himself. That is... He was fully divine, just like God the Father. No difference. And John wants to establish this from the what? The very beginning of his gospel. You find that interesting? Right up front, he makes us aware of this. He says the things you'll see, the word do, and the things you'll hear him say throughout the rest of my gospel, they're the actions and the words of God himself. That's what John's telling us. This is God. And I'm about to tell you about Him. Everything you hear and everything you see, this is God. You disbelieve the Word, you disbelieve Jesus, you're disbelieving God. You disobey the Word, be warned. That's God you're disobeying. Now, I want to point this out for a particular reason. um, Other than the fact that it's in the Bible and we need to talk about it. Uh, I'm well aware that there are those who will uh, come or who have come to your door and they will say heretical things about this verse. If they haven't, get ready because they're in our neighborhood and they'll show up one day. Don't be surprised when uh, a particular denomination comes to your door and this is one of the first places they'll go. It happened to me in the driveway one day. Four ladies pulled up. They got out and began to talk. I played dumb. I like I didn't know nothing. I couldn't even spell Bible. <laughs> Man, they were just talking to me, talking to me. And I said, well, what about John 1.1? 1, 1? It was like, uh-oh. They will show up. Don't be surprised. But they're not the first people to dispute that Jesus was fully God. Uh, actually, they're just repeating a heresy that comes from the 4th century. Uh, here's what I want to tell you. It was a bad idea then, and it's a bad idea now. Nothing has changed. Their argument is this. Now, I'm going to tell you their argument, and I'm going to tell you why I'm telling you their argument, and why you don't really need to worry about their argument. 
Okay? That don't mean you don't have to listen now. Their argument is this. They will tell you that when they look at their translation of the Bible, and they look at the Greek, they'll say the word the, T-H-E, the definite article, does not appear before the word God. Now, the word the is a definite article. Let me explain that. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what is He saying? I'm it. There are no other ways. The is definite. That means this is it. So they'll say that the definite article doesn't appear there, so therefore it must be an indefinite article, and they put the word a in there. The word was a God. That's what their translation of the Bible says. That is, they want us to believe that the Word is a God, but He's a lesser God. He's created. He's not fully God. That's what they will tell you. And that day in the driveway, that's exactly where they went and began to tell me, oh, Jesus, He wasn't God, and they began to talk about that. So how do you answer them? How do you respond to that? You say, I don't know the first thing about Greek. I can't debate that issue with them. You don't have to. You don't have to know Greek grammar to show a Jehovah's Witness that he's wrong. Now be nice. Be kind. Don't tell him he's an idiot. And his Bible's stupid. Because you just, man, you you get the argument heated. And nobody hears anything then. Here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to be a good student of the context of the Bible. And this is a perfect example of that. What do I mean by context? I mean, don't cherry-pick verses out of the Bible. Because if you pull a verse out and you use that one verse to make a doctrine, you're in trouble. Because you've got to take that verse and everything that comes before it and after it and that surrounds it has to go with that. Here's the point I'm making. The claim of the Jehovah's Witnesses that the Word was a created being is contrary to what John says in the verses that come right after this. Look at verse 3. Remember, they say He is a God, so He was created. Well, you read verse 3 and you've got to go, wait a minute. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. <laughs> verse 3 says that everything that has ever come into being came into being through who? Jesus. Jesus the Word was God's <laughs> means of creating everything that has been created. God gave the responsibility of creation to Jesus. But if the Word Himself, Jesus, has been created, like the Jehovah Witnesses want us to believe, I just told you the denomination, didn't I? Then in verse 3, there's a problem with their view. How can you create yourself? That's not logical, is it? You have to exist before you can create something, right? So when you look at the context of verse 1, it's impossible to understand that John is saying that the Word is created. He's a lesser God. Instead, he's saying that the Word is preexistent and He's fully God. Does that make sense? Jesus would have to have created Himself in order to create everything else. So you don't have to know Greek. You can just go to verse 3 and say, well, hey, Jesus created everything, so therefore He must have existed before everything came into creation and He couldn't have created Himself. You ever seen the jaw drop on someone? That's what's going to happen when they hear you say that. Because they're going to know, oh, this is just not somebody who claims the name Christian. They, they, they know their Bibles. Secondly, other scriptures are clear when it comes to Jesus being God. 
The book of John in particular. Uh, you know, I've had people tell me, Jesus never claimed to be God. I said, you ever read the book of John? Well, yeah. I said, well, you need to read it again because you missed something. In the book of John, there are many occasions where Jesus claims to be God. And I'm not going to go through all those. I'm just going to give you a couple here. And chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas sees Jesus risen from the dead. Doubting Thomas. He sees Jesus. And here's how he refers to Him. He says, My Lord and my God. What does Thomas refer to Jesus as? God. You read the remaining verses, nowhere does Jesus ever dispute what Thomas says about Him. Now, if Jesus were the truth, and John wasn't telling the truth about Him, what would Jesus do? He'd go, that's not right. Jesus never denies that. Years later, if you go to the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, we have John again. And there in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, um, John sees a vision of the risen Jesus, and, he, and, the, and the Bible says he falls on his face like a dead man. And here's what Jesus says to him. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now you're going, well, that verse doesn't help me a whole lot. Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament. You have to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6. Here's what that verse says. Thus says the Lord, this is God speaking, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Did you hear something similar in those verses? Jesus claims in Revelation that I am what? The first and the last. He was claiming that Isaiah 44 verse 6 is talking about Him. Jesus is saying, I am God. In light of Isaiah, clearly Jesus was claiming to be the true and the living God. And here's why I bring all this out to you. What you believe about the Word, what you believe about Jesus matters. And it matters a great deal. And here's why. If you deny that Jesus is fully God, then you end up with some problems, some big problems. The biggest problem is, if Jesus is not God, you cannot be saved. Because if the Word is not fully God, then when He became a human and died on the cross in place of sinners, that wasn't God substituting Himself for you. It was something less than God. But something less than God isn't God. It isn't a sacrifice before God that turns away His wrath for sin. And on top of that, it leaves us placing our trust in what? A created being to save us. And that's no good. If the Word isn't fully God, you're not saved today. If Jesus is not God, you are not saved. And that really got the ladies' attention that day when I told them, if Jesus is not God, you're dead in your sin. You're going to hell. I was nice. I was just pointing the truth out to them. If the Word isn't fully God, you sit here today still in your sin under God's wrath. And if Jesus isn't God, we are all going to hell. That's the bottom line. But because the Word is fully God, because He has offered us as a sacrifice of infinite merit before God, all those who turn from their sin and trust in Him will be fully saved, pardoned, and forgiven. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will know wise what? Turn them away. Now, uh, one last thing before we move to verse 14. 
Have you ever wondered why John refers to Jesus as the Word? Has that ever caused you to go, why does he, why does he just not call Him Jesus? Why does he, why does he use this, this term, the Word? Have you ever wondered that? Well, Bible scholars have a lot to say, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you one. Okay? Which I think kind of... Uh, all of them are right, accurate, but I think this is the best one. I think John has the Old Testament in mind here when he gives this title to Jesus. In the Old Testament, God's Word is the way that He expresses Himself. It's the way that He declares what He's like. It's also the way He what? Creates. He speaks and things come into being. In Genesis chapter 1, God simply speaks and there they are. Creation comes. And in the Old Testament, God's Word is also the way He delivers His people. So God's Word expresses what He's like, and it's used in creation and deliverance. In fact, in several places in the Old Testament, God's Word is what we call personified. That means it's described as a human being. Did you hear what I said? Sometimes God's Word is personified. It's described as a what? human being. It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who's given human characteristics and that's exactly what we see here. When John wants to describe the one who reveals what God's like, who's God's instrument of creation and deliverance and who will become human himself, he uses the term, the Word. Because God expresses himself through Word and in the Bible that Word sometimes becomes personified and what happens when Jesus comes? He becomes a human being and he comes in this world as a human. So John right away in verse 1 says he's telling us who Jesus is. But where does the Christmas part come in? Verse 14. Jesus is revealed as God in human flesh. I, I think verse 14 is one of the most significant verses in all the Bible. Notice what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the eternal God became what? Flesh. When you think of flesh, what do you think? Physical. Body. God became a man. It means that Jesus is God who became a man. Jesus took to Himself full humanity. Uh, the Word became there does not mean that Jesus ceased being God. This is something else we need to make sure we understand. Jesus became a man and He did so without giving up the fact that He was God. Jesus is God. But He became fully man. At the same time, He remained God. He never ceased to be God. He's always been God, but He took on the form of a man, but He never ceased to be God. Jesus always had been God, but at birth, Jesus became a human being. That's another thing hard for us to get our mind around, right? Jesus walking on this earth was fully God, and yet at the same time, He was fully man. But notice what it says about Him. And He dwelt among us. God, Jesus, dwelt among us. That word dwelt, here's what that word means. And this is, this is, a, this is really, as we like to say, cool. I love this. The word dwelt in the Greek means to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. That's what that word means. God in Jesus pitched His tent among us. Now that word meaning that has a purpose. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was an earthly picture of God's dwelling place among men, was it not? It was a tent better known as the tabernacle. 
Jesus in His human body was God pitching His tent among men. So if you go read the Old Testament, the tabernacle is not just a structure that they put up and put down. and It was so God could dwell among them. But what was the tabernacle pointing us to? One day when God would come and dwell among us in human flesh. Just as God dwelt among the people by meeting with Moses in that tent of meeting, He was now coming near to dwell among people in the person of Jesus. Notice what it says there. And we have seen His glory. We've seen God's glory. In Exodus chapter 33, if you've read that, you know that Moses asked God a question. And he says, God, I want to see Your glory. You remember that? And what does God do? You can't see me and live, Moses. You'll die. I'm too glorious. I'm too holy. You look upon me, you'll die. So what does God do? He puts Moses in that rock and He puts His hand and covers him, and he walks by, and Moses gets to see the backside. He gets to see the afterglow of God. But look at what John is claiming. Now, in the person of Jesus, the one and only Son, God's glory is revealed, and He dwells among us. To see Jesus was to see God face to face, to see the full glory of God. And we have seen His glory. But notice next, glory as the only Son from the Father. Some of you have translations that read the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten means unique or one and only. There's no one like this. One and only of its kind. Only begotten does not refer to Jesus being born of Mary or to His coming into existence. Instead, the phrase points to Jesus as the unique, one of a kind, who has a relationship with the Father who is eternal. He is God's Son in a unique way that no one else ever could be. And notice what else John says about Jesus' glory. It's full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus, who is God, was full of grace and truth. Again, if you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 34, when God is passing by Moses, He says something about Himself. He says, I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. It's translated a little bit bit differently here, but it says Jesus is what? Full of grace and truth. Here's what John is claiming. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and He's now put that on display in a way like never before by sending His Son into the world. In Jesus, God became a man. The grace and truth of God are ultimately revealed. You want to know the ultimate glory of God, the ultimate grace, and the ultimate truth of God? Here it is. It's Jesus. I think these terms are also essential for us understanding our salvation. Grace is God's favor toward us, shown to those who deserve judgment. If you can earn your salvation, then you don't need grace. Only sinners need grace. The only way you can receive God's salvation is to acknowledge your need as a sinner and forsake all your trust in yourself and trust in the grace of God that comes to us through Christ and His cross. Truth points to the character of God. As a God of truth, His righteous standard calls us to truth. And this is critical for us to understand. God calls us to what? Be perfect as I am perfect. But we've what? Sinned and fallen short of that righteousness. Jesus claimed in John 14, 6, which I quoted earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, I'm the truth. 
I am the way. When He offered Himself on the cross, He paid the penalty for sin that we deserved. And as a result, He upheld God's truth. And yet at the same time, He could offer us grace. But you must respond to God's grace and God's truth in Jesus. Your response to the eternal Son of God who became a man should be to trust Him as Savior and follow Him as Lord. There are no other options for us. You must trust Him as Savior and follow Him as Lord. The answer to life's most crucial question, who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God who left heaven and came to this world in the form of a man. He lived perfectly in your place to satisfy God's righteous standard. Why? Like I said earlier, God says you are to be perfect like I am perfect. You and I are not perfect, right? But God still requires perfection. So Jesus became a man in order to live for you. Christmas is about Jesus coming to live for you. Jesus lived perfectly, right? Never sinned. But He became sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God. God says you be righteous, but we can't be. So Jesus lives righteous. He dies for you. He lives for you. And therefore His righteousness is applied to your life. He dies on the cross on your behalf to satisfy God's wrath against you. Christmas is about Jesus becoming a man in order to die for you. And He rose from the dead to make it possible for you to be made right with God. Jesus became a man in order to make it possible you to be made right with God. Christmas is about being reconciled to God. What's the big deal about Christmas? God, Jesus, eternal, became a man, lived for me, died for me, and rose from the dead for me so that I could be born again and saved and reconciled to God. Your response is to turn from your sin and trust Jesus and follow Him as Lord. That's the only response there is. To Jesus becoming a man. What's so great about Christmas? What's the big deal with Christmas? Someone ask you that this week or any time you say, I know the big deal is, is that God left heaven and His Son Jesus, who is fully God, and He came into this world and became one of us so that He could live for us and die for us and rise from the dead for us. Man, you just told the gospel to somebody in about 15 seconds. Now, of course, they're going to have questions. But that's what's so great about Christmas. For those of you here today who, who are already saved, there's another aspect of that. You must trust Jesus, but you also must what? Follow Him as Lord. Is He the Lord of your life today? A Lord is someone who has what? Authority over your life, right? Control over others. To say that someone is Lord is to consider that person the ruler of your life. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves today, believers. Is that the case with me? Is Jesus Lord of my life? God left heaven to come and live for me and to die for me, to rise from the dead so that I could be saved. How can I not follow Him as my Lord? How can I not do that? Have you bowed your knee to Jesus and submitted your life to Him as Lord and ruler of your life? Let's pray.